You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. My name is Josh Wade. I'm on the elder team and I've got the privilege of preaching God's word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are and for how you love us. God, we need you, so please, in your power, and according to your will, would you help us to fix our eyes on you, our wonderful Savior. Jesus, help us to see you, to savor you, And please make us more like you for the glory of your great name and for our joy. Amen. Well, um, you know, I've been so encouraged by this little letter to Philemon. And as we've studied it over the last couple weeks, uh, what a treasure we have in this unique letter. And it really is unique. In all of Paul's letters, he teaches the gospel by applying it to the church's many problems. Again and again, we find Paul teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ by applying it to issues like pride, sexual immorality, disunity, false teaching. And to be sure, he does this in his letter to Philemon. He teaches the gospel by applying it to the conflict between Onesimus and Philemon. But there's more happening here. As Jake emphasized a couple weeks ago, this letter is addressed not to an entire body of believers, but to a single man. It's a personal letter. And as such, it provides us with a unique vantage point, a unique window into Paul's heart and his commitments. And if we pay careful attention, we get to witness how the heart of Christ has shaped Paul's personal life. Um, Before I read the letter, strike team, you can come down. If anyone needs a copy of God's word, please raise your hand. And if you don't have a copy, this one's yours to keep. Uh, I, I grew up in the South And as a kid, my parents often reminded me to show respect and deference to adults by using four really important small words. Mr., Mrs., Sir, and Ma'am. I'm honestly not sure if I knew any adult's first name. It was completely irrelevant to my life. My very best friend's mom Mrs. Gear. Her first name was Mrs. as far as I was concerned. Uh, Sir and ma'am were just spoken periods that concluded every sentence with talk, when talking with an adult. My parents taught me to do this through many reminders. 
They taught me to apply these terms. But what was far more impactful was watching my dad use those same words when he talked with his elders. And he would do it with such sincerity. It was so natural to him. No pretense. It was genuine. I remember going to my grandparents' house and watching my dad show genuine respect by saying, yes, ma'am. Thank you, sir. In his letter to Philemon, Paul isn't merely teaching sirs and ma'ams. He's using them with sincerity. He's revealing his own heart, which has been shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is our third and final week in Philemon. In week one, Jake highlighted the context for reconciliation. Then in week two, he described the call to reconciliation. And this week, I'm tasked with discussing uh, the commitment to live reconciled. I want us to begin by considering Paul's own heart and his personal commitments as they're evident in this piece of personal correspondence. I hope we'll see how this points to the tender heart of Christ and his abiding commitment to the redeemed. And in particular, we'll consider how Paul's sincere intercession and strong advocacy point to the present and perpetual ministry of Jesus Christ for the redeemed. So as I read the letter, remember that this is personal correspondence. Remember that Paul is both proclaiming the gospel and revealing a heart that is steeped, saturated, and shaped by the love of Christ. And look for exactly how Paul intercedes and advocates for Onesimus. He does it in overt and in very subtle ways. Let's read the text. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, 
that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you'd receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. And at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. In our formal preaching and our casual conversations, we talk a lot about the atoning life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We repeatedly emphasize the finished, accomplished, or completed work of Jesus to justify sinners, as we should. But what is Jesus doing right now? After all, he's alive. He's a real person. And presumably, like any real live person, he's doing something. What is Jesus doing right now as I speak, as you take that breath? And what about his heart? It's been 2,000 years since his death and resurrection. Has his love for the redeemed cooled over the course of centuries and millennia? Has his devotion to us diminished? What is Jesus doing for you right now? And the answer the New Testament gives is this. Jesus is interceding and advocating for the redeemed before the Father. Intercession and advocacy are not for the faint of heart. In this letter to Philemon, we find Paul in a precarious place. He's placing himself in the middle of a conflict between two other grown men. Onesimus and Philemon have unfinished business. It's uncomfortable, tense, high stakes. And Paul is throwing himself in the middle, encouraging and even exhorting Philemon to forgive Onesimus and receive him as a brother. But he wants to do it tactfully, without forcing Philemon's hand. My grandmother grew up in rural Western Virginia, and her upbringing in the Appalachian foothills gave her some interesting ways of speaking. And one of her phrases was, might should. Here's how she'd use it. Joshua, your mother is going to be home in five minutes. You might should pick up them toys. Joshua, I'm worried about my windows. You might should quit kicking that soccer ball inside of my house. And Joshua, if your friends got you so upset, you might should talk to him instead of talking about him. Might should. 
It's a wonderfully useful phrase. <laughs> the word might suggests that there's an option, while the word should simultaneously conveys there's a clear course of correct action. If you want to preserve the autonomy of a listener while also reminding them of reasonable, appropriate conduct, you tell them they might should do something. Now, Paul was fluent in ancient Hebrew, Aramaic, Koine Greek, and probably other languages. Appalachian English was definitely not in his repertoire. But if you look closely, you will find plenty of might shoulds in this letter to Philemon. Consider verse 8 and 9. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Or verse 14. I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And then there's verse 21 from today's section. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Real reconciliation cannot be forced. Because of his love for Philemon and his desire for Philemon to fully comprehend the scandalous grace of Christ, Paul intercedes rather than commanding. To intercede is to stand between two people in order to make a case to one person on behalf of the other. So Paul is standing between Philemon and Onesimus. Why? In order to make a case to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. And though Paul doesn't force Philemon's hand, he pulls out all the stops. In both obvious and more subtle ways, Paul skillfully intercedes for Onesimus. Let's briefly look at two of the more subtle ways Paul does this. Right from the jump, as Jake pointed out two weeks ago, Paul's introduction, in the span of two verses, he uses the word our four separate times. It's remarkable. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. Right from the jump, Paul begins by reminding Philemon of the shared identity and mutual belonging that's enjoyed by everyone who is in Christ by grace and through faith in his atoning work. We are in Christ together. This is our true, ultimate, shared identity. Can you hear Paul subtly saying, Philemon, we belong to Christ and therefore we belong to each other. You might should forgive Onesimus and receive him as a brother. And then there's Paul's repeated allusions to his imprisonment. Did you notice this? We've got 25 verses here. It's a brief letter. Five separate times Paul mentions that he's a prisoner. He begins the letter by describing himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. 
Then in verses 9 and 10, he reminds Philemon of his imprisonment two more times. I, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became when? In my imprisonment. Then again in verse 13, Paul says that he would have been glad to have Onesimus remain in Rome in order that he might serve me on your behalf when? During my imprisonment. And finally, in his conclusion, Paul describes Epaphras as my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. The cost of discipleship is high. We're called to die to ourselves and follow Christ's example of humble, sacrificial love. And we're told the world will reject and despise us because we belong to Christ. The cost is high, but belonging to Jesus is worth it. Can you hear Paul subtly saying, Philemon, I know forgiveness is hard. Following Jesus is often painful. I know this better than most. I'm in chains after all. But Christ is worth it. You might should forgive Onesimus and receive him as a brother. Paul places himself in the middle of this contentious, fractured relationship. And in both subtle and overt ways, he, he intercedes for Onesimus without forcing Philemon's hand. But he doesn't just intercede. He also advocates, especially in verses 17 through 22. Think for a moment. What's the difference between intercession and and advocacy. To intercede is to stand in the middle between two parties in conflict. But to advocate is to stand beside, to identify with one of the parties. My favorite definition for advocate is comforting defender. Have you ever had an advocate? A comforting defender who stood beside you and identified with you in the midst of strife as you faced frightening opposition. When I was a teenager, middle school and high school, I got in trouble at school quite a bit. My heart was filled with fear, grief, and sadness. And in my sin, I worked this out through uh, some spectacular displays of defiance and disrespect. So I often found myself in Dean Owen's office. Dean Owen. And you, you got to say her name like this. Dean Owen. It should, it should send a chill down your spine. She was in her late 60s. She was 4 feet 10 inches tall. Maybe 100 pounds soaking wet and terrifying. This woman had been the dean at a rough middle school for more than 20 years. She'd heard every excuse in the book a thousand times. Every morning she woke up and ate lies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then washed them down with the tears of guilty children. <laughs> 
to give you a sense of things, one of her intimidation tactics was this. After she'd heard all your excuses and dismissed them, there's a phone on her desk and she'd slide it in your direction and say, dial a number. Of course, the woman had a file on you. She could have called a number, but the message was clear. You can call your mom, your dad, your attorney, the president. It does not matter because I'm after you. I would always call my grandmother. <laughs> my mom was going to find out, but if I was given the choice, she wouldn't be the first to know. On one occasion, however, I found myself in Dean's, Dean Owen's office for something I truly had not done. It was a serious offense. Someone had vandalized the school over the weekend, and the police were involved. And I was horrified. I had a reputation that went before me. I was in her office talking to a woman who was completely apathetic, unfazed by all my pleas for mercy and tears. I felt so trapped until she slid the phone across the desk and said, dial a number. And you know who I called? My mom. My mom could be a firm disciplinarian, but she was also a fierce protector of her kids. Um, throughout her life, in many ways, she had tasted the bitterness of injustice firsthand, and I knew it would be over her dead body that one of her children was imperiled by a false accusation. I knew that my mom was going to come in the room. She's going to see the look on my face, the shock, and the fear and then she was going to turn into a grizzly bear and Dean Owen wouldn't know what hit her an advocate is a comforting defender who stands beside the vulnerable and identifies with them completely in the midst of strife identifying completely with the vulnerable this is how advocacy works and it's what really separates it from intercession. Have you noticed how Paul advocates for Onesimus by repeatedly identifying with him? He doesn't engage as a distant observer. He doesn't use the cold language of formal analysis. Paul personally identifies himself with Onesimus. In verse 10, he refers to Onesimus as my child. In verse 12, he reports that by sending Onesimus back to Colossae, he's sending his very heart. And then in verse 17, Paul tells Philemon to receive Onesimus as you would receive me. And in verses 18 and 19, Paul states that Onesimus' debts are his debts. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, Charge that to my account. Personally, my favorite strategy that Paul employs comes in verse 22. He says, At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Think about this for a moment. Think about what Paul is saying. This is not a metaphor. 
He is literally telling Philemon to go have a room prepared for Paul. Kate and I are both from Florida and our families still live there. And they visit us once or twice a year. My downstairs office turns into the guest room whenever this happens. Or the better way of saying it is I'm forced to stop pretending that the downstairs guest room is my office. And in, in anticipation of our visitors, Kate prepares the room. She cleans the room, pulls out the Murphy bed, sets out towels. She also goes and buys fresh flowers and puts them in a vase on the desk. She also buys the guests preferred candy and puts them in a jar on the nightstand. Sometimes this happens two days before our guests arrive. Sometimes it's two hours. Sometimes it's two minutes before. But in each case, the house is notably transformed. I mean it. There's like a buzz of anticipation in the air. A new excited energy permeates the home. I can feel it from my kids, from Kate. I can feel it in myself. It's like our guests are already there with us. The room is prepared. To prepare a room for someone is to anticipate their arrival and to be reminded continually of their proximity to your life and your affairs. Do you see what Paul is doing here? Do you see how deeply and skillfully he identifies with Onesimus? Philemon, Onesimus is my child. I'm sending you my very heart. The way you receive him is the way you receive me. The debts he owes, those are my debts. And when he's with you, I'm there. So long as Onesimus is in that house, I want you to feel my presence and my proximity. So go ahead and prepare a room for me in that great big house of yours. This is how Paul intercedes and advocates. It's how he stands between and stands beside. He does this for Onesimus, his beloved child, his very heart. As in all his letters, Paul teaches Onesimus to apply the gospel to his problems. But this personal letter does more than that. In a very personal way, Paul reveals how his own head and heart have been shaped by the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ. We get to see the beating heart of Christ through Paul's sincere intercession and strong advocacy. So I'd like to leave Philemon now and consider what God's word says about how Christ intercedes and advocates for us today. I want to consider the theme of Christ's present ministry. I personally strongly prefer uh, expository preaching that focuses on a single text to thematic preaching or topical preaching that bounces from one text to another. But I feel that it's important that we pause and consider this topic precisely because it's neglected in the church today. What is Jesus doing right now? 
He's interceding and advocating for the redeemed before the throne of the Father. Consider Hebrews 7, 23 and 25. The former priests were many in number, but they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In his priestly role, Jesus stands between the Father and the redeemed. And indeed, the redeemed draw near to the Father through Christ and Christ alone. He intercedes for us by averting the Father's gaze from our sin. From our sin to the perfect righteousness of Christ. Jesus is doing this right now. Right now and forevermore. And as I said earlier, we frequently think and talk about the accomplished past work of Christ but we think and talk much less about his present and ongoing ministry. Why is that? One reason, I think, is that we're not sure how to reconcile the past completed work of Christ with his present ministry. The very need for present intercession almost seems to suggest that something is lacking or deficient in his past work. But look at Romans 8, verses 33 and 34. Paul is the author here again. And he says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In this passage, Paul seamlessly links justification with intercession. He integrates the past accomplished work of Christ with Christ's present ongoing ministry. Do you see Paul doesn't treat intercession and justification as two separate topics? He integrates them into a single, unconquerable labor of love. Through his present and perpetual intercession, Jesus continually applies his completed work of atonement. Through his present and perpetual intercession, Jesus continually applies his completed work of atonement. Dane Ortland, in his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, says it this way. Christ's present heavenly intercession on our behalf is a reflection of the fullness and victory and completeness of his earthly work, not a reflection of anything lacking in his earthly work. The atonement accomplished our salvation. Intercession is the moment-by-moment application of that atoning work. Jesus applies his atoning work by interceding for the redeemed before the Father. Intercession applies what atonement accomplished. 
in order to possess a thorough understanding of our justified status before God, in order to fully enjoy and celebrate Christ's atoning work, we need to remember how he presently and perpetually applies that atoning work. And by, ne by neglecting what Scripture says about Christ's present intercession, we're left with a muted joy and a diminished understanding of our justification. And what about advocacy? Because the New Testament teaches that Jesus intercedes and advocates on our behalf. He doesn't just stand between, he stands beside. He identifies with us. Look at 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins. And not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So once again in this passage, we see the present ministry of Christ linked with his accomplished work. Our present advocate is the propitiation for our sins, the one who has satisfied the just wrath of God through his sacrificial death on our behalf. But there's also a difference between intercession and advocacy that's evident in this text. It appears that intercession is something that Christ continually does because of our general sinfulness. But advocacy, however, is something he does as specific occasion calls for it. Namely, Christ advocates for the redeemed in the event of our particular sins. Please think about this. In your worst moments, the ones you're ashamed to remember, those ugly ugly moments. Christ doesn't turn his back on you. He doesn't go from standing between to standing aside. When you need him most, Christ moves from standing between to standing beside you. He advocates. I mean, what a savior. What a comforting defender. Why don't we think and talk about this more? One reason, I think, is that the profound warmth of Christ's advocacy, it almost suggests that the Father is cold towards us. Think back to my middle school analogy. I needed my mom to be a strong defender, a comforting defender, because Dean Owen was so hostile and apathetic. Is the Father apathetic? cold, reluctant to embrace us? Does Christ's advocacy rescue us from an indifferent father? One more childhood memory as an analogy. I'm the oldest of three siblings, and from a very young age, my dad made it exceedingly clear that as the oldest, it was my job to protect and defend 
my younger siblings. This was serious to him, especially as it applied to my younger sister, who's three years younger than me. And I can distinctly remember this one time we were at the ball fields. Me, my brother, and my sister each had games that day. And there was a big playground where kids would go entertain themselves between baseball or softball games. My sister was over there with a friend, and apparently they were being bullied by some older boys who were being awful, just saying cruel things to embarrass the girls. Uh, my, My sister would just tough it out and never mention this, but her friend came over and reported things to her dad. The dad was standing not far from where me and my dad were sitting. The dad heard her out and said something like, okay, I'll go check on it in a bit. My dad didn't say a word. I mean, truly, if you were, if you were watching, you might have thought he didn't even hear the exchange. He didn't say a word. He just gave me a look. I knew exactly what my father wanted from me. I got up, I left the bleachers, and I went over to the great big playground to protect and defend my kid sister. And I went there fully assured of my father's will. My dad's silence did not signal his indifference or apathy towards my sister's feelings. It's the exact opposite. My dad could be silent because he had made it so clear to me throughout my childhood that it was important to him that I protect and defend. He had made it so clear to me throughout my childhood that my siblings' safety and comfort mattered so much to him. When Jesus advocates for the redeemed, he does the Father's will. It's the Father's will for Christ to stand beside us and identify with us and be our comforting defender. Earlier this morning, we read a passage from the high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus is about to be betrayed, uh, arrested, and crucified. He's returning to the Father. And in his final moments with the disciples, he prays to the Father on their behalf. And in this prayer, he makes it so clear that the Son and the Father dwell in perfect unity. That it's the Father who has sent the Son. It's the Father's will that the redeemed, that the elect, are rescued cared for, and defended. Look at verses 6 through 8. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. I have given them the words that you gave me and they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I 
Jesus hasn't stopped praying for the redeemed. What a thought. When he comes to stand beside us and identify with us, he always comes in unity with the Father. Indeed, he comes in the Father's name, doing the Father's will. The profound warmth of Christ's advocacy on our behalf doesn't signal any coldness from the Father. It's the opposite. The warmth of Christ's affection and advocacy is a reflection of the Father's tender care for His children. It is the Father's will that His precious Son should advocate for the redeemed. Let's briefly review or recap what we've said about Paul's letter to Philemon and about this theme of the present ministry of Christ. We began by saying Paul's sincere intercession and strong advocacy points us to the present and perpetual ministry of Jesus Christ for the redeemed. And then I made this main point that Jesus is interceding and advocating for the redeemed before the throne of the Father. He's doing that right now. And then we anticipated two potential questions or difficulties related to the present ministry of Christ. First, does Christ's present intercession signal that something was somehow lacking in his past work to justify us? The answer, through his present and perpetual intercession, Christ continually applies his completed work of atonement. Intercession applies what atonement accomplished. Then there was the second difficulty. Is Christ's advocacy necessary because the Father is somehow reluctant to embrace us? And the answer, it's the Father's will that his precious Son should advocate for the redeemed. This sermon is about the commitment to live reconciled. Jesus still lives. He's still committed, still ministering to all who are reconciled to God through Him. He's committed to live now and forevermore for our reconciliation. I want to conclude by highlighting how we can apply this truth and why it's so important. First, the present ministry of Christ should remind us that our redemption isn't the result of a single outburst of love. The love of God in Christ abides. You are loved in Christ you are loved now as much as you ever have been with the same love, not an ounce less, that moved Christ to climb on the cross. And you are loved right now as much as you ever will be with the same radiant, perfect love that you will see in full in eternity. The present ministry of Jesus Christ showcases this pre precious reality. 
So, in our private prayers and in our corporate worship, we might should remember the present ministry of Christ. In your personal prayers, when you thank God for His grace to you, when you thank God for sending His Son to atone for your sins, thank Him also that Christ is presently committed to apply that atoning work by interceding for you. In the evening, if you're like me and you have this awful habit of remembering the most embarrassing moment of the day right as you're about to fall asleep, in the evening when you think about your failures and your sins, praise God that it's His will and His delight for His Son to stand beside you and to be your comforting defender when you need Him most. In our corporate fellowship, when a brother or sister confesses sin, shares weakness, let's not only remind them that they have been justified by Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection, let's also remind one another that our failures, get this, actually stir the tender heart of Christ to move towards us, to stand beside us as a comforting defender. We don't need to minimize our sin, to dismiss it, to rationalize it, to pretend like it never happened. We don't need to hide in shame either. When we do any of these things, it's a sure sign that we've forgotten the present ministry and beating heart of Christ. This precious reality is not just for our personal, private prayers and our corporate fellowship. It's also exceedingly relevant for evangelism. Typically, when we think about sharing the gospel, we think about explaining what Christ has done for us. And that's important, and we should do that. But shouldn't we also explain what Christ is doing right now? Imagine trying to introduce a dear friend to a family member. But only telling your family member about what the friend previously did without ever mentioning any of their recent or ongoing activities. Be a strange introduction. When we proclaim the gospel, We are not teaching an intellectual paradigm. We are not espousing a set of principles. Not merely that. A thousand versions of that stuff can be found in the self-help section of any bookstore. Gospel proclamation is not about a paradigm. It's not about a set of principles. It's about a person. His name is Jesus. He's still alive still committed to our reconciliation with every breath. Let's share the heart of Christ, our wonderful Savior, our comforting defender, by telling people what he's up to right now. Let's pray.